0: This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with over 150,000 titles to choose from. When you're done with this episode, please visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for your free audiobook with a free 30-day trial membership. Today's recommendation is The Feud That Sparked the Renaissance, How Brunelleschi and Ghiberti Changed the Art World by Paul Robert Walker a lively and intriguing tale of the competition between two artists culminating in the construction of the Duomo in Florence. You may choose this or another one of their many titles when you visit audibletrial.com forward slash the Renaissance for your free download. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance, Episode 3, The Sacrifice of Isaac. This week, we'll look at a pair of dueling artists who kicked off the Renaissance in Florence. From the beginning of their careers, Filippo Brunelleschi and Lorenzo Ghiberti were rivals. The rivalry would extend throughout their lives and every major project they would undertake. So strong was this rivalry that their lives were intertwined. Each artist would step continually on the toes of the other, and their names are still linked, and this is why we will discuss them both during this podcast. Brunelleschi was born in Florence in 1377 to a civil servant. It was expected that Brunelleschi would follow his father into a life of civil service. However, he showed tremendous talent for drawing, and with his father's blessing, he was apprenticed to a goldsmith. Though not the career his family had intended, life as a goldsmith could be quite lucrative, and this may be why his father so readily agreed. While working as an apprentice, he would have had the opportunity to hone his drawing skills, as well as learning how to cast precious metals such as bronze and gold, and the mechanical skills of a clockmaker. It is even said that Brunelleschi developed the first prototype for the alarm clock, though no examples exist today. The skills he would learn as a goldsmith would become a major asset for Brunelleschi, as he had to invent many of the machines and pulleys necessary to complete his monumental building designs. Lorenzo Ghiberti, on the other hand, was born in Pelago, just outside of Florence, in 1378. Ghiberti did write an autobiography, so we have more than just Vasari and Antonio Minetti. However, his autobiography is not as particularly reliable. Ghiberti's stepfather was a goldsmith, and Lorenzo would receive his early training in the workshop of his stepfather. He would later move to Florence and work in the same workshop where Brunelleschi received his training, though there's no evidence that either man met prior to 1401. Fleeing Florence in 1400 due to an outbreak of the plague, Ghiberti settled in Rimini, where he assisted with the frescoes of the castle of Carlo I. This brings us up to the competition of 1401. In the hopes of ending the plague outbreak of 1400, the Guild of the Cloth Merchants agreed to sponsor a new set of doors for the Baptistry of St. John, or San Giovanni, as a votive offering. The Baptistry is an octagonal building with a dome that sits in front of the Cathedral of Santa Maria dei Fiore. This is the place where every child of Florence would come to be baptized. The plan was to replace the original doors cast by Andreo Pisano on the east side of the Baptistry. The subject for the competition panel would be the sacrifice of Isaac from Genesis. Among the judges would be Giovanni de' Medici, Cosimo's father. Remember, we met him in episode one. He would be instrumental in the final selection process. The contestants were given 75 pounds of bronze and a year to complete the sample to present to the guild. A year seems like an awful long time for a contest to go on, but we must look at the difficulties in casting bronze. It might take a year or longer to create a finished product. I think it's no accident that the first three great Renaissance sculptors come from the workshops of the goldsmiths. Brunelleschi, Ghiberti, and Donatello were all apprentices to goldsmiths. And in the goldsmiths' workshops, they would learn the skills necessary to create large, monumental sculptures. While lucrative, it could be a dangerous business. The smiths dealt with toxic chemicals like mercury, as well as molten metal, Casting was a tricky process, and as often as not, the mold was made and the metal cast, and then a slight imperfection would force the artist to scrap the entire piece. It was not a very forgiving art form. Often, artists would take months completing their molds only to scrap the entire thing and start from scratch. First, the artist had to create a rough form in clay, and once this was dry, a coat of wax was applied. At this stage, all the fine details would be carved into the wax. It was a very intricate process that took a lot of time and precision to complete. The next stage, a paste was made of burnt cow horn, iron filings, and cow dung, and was thinly applied over the wax relief. On top of this, another layer of clay was added and bound with iron hoops. The entire mound was placed in a kiln and fired. The wax would ooze out of the vent holes on the bottom, leaving the mold hollow inside. Into this hollow shell, the artist would pour molten metal, in this case bronze, into the mold. Once cooled, the artist had to break the mold open to reveal the bronze casting inside. The final product was a mystery until the mold was cracked open and at any point a defect could render the casting useless. In Brunelleschi's Dome, a great book for those interested in more information about these artists, Ross King states that the process was so perilous that Michelangelo would request a mass be set every time he began pouring a bronze statue. So a year was not so generous as it might seem, and very likely the artists would need every bit of that time for such a small casting. There were seven entries, but we only needed to focus on the top three finalists. The finalist for this competition reads like a who's who of the early Renaissance, with Brunelleschi, Ghiberti, and Donatello all vying for the coveted commission. However, in 1401, all three of these greats were yet young and untried artists who had only relatively recently completed their apprenticeship. The contest would come down to Ghiberti and Brunelleschi. Each artist worked using opposite approaches. Kiberty sought the advice and aid from all over Florence, and had master artists critique his wax models before casting them. He even had his stepfather assist him with the polishing and finishing of the panel. Brunelleschi, on the other hand, worked in secret and allowed no one to see his final work until it was unveiled for judging. He feared some other disreputable artist might steal his ideas and claim them as his own, a fear that was not unjustified. Both men would maintain similar working habits for the rest of their lives. When the panels were judged, the opinion of the judges and the people of Florence were divided between Ghiberti and Brunelleschi. Brunelleschi's is more dramatic, but Ghiberti's is more graceful. In the placement of the figures and the use of space, Brunelleschi maintains a gothic flatness, while Ghiberti's figures overlap in a more natural way and they relate to each other within the space. He also creates a more balanced composition based on Renaissance ideas of harmony and balance. Both entries still exist today and may be seen in the Bargello in Florence. Now, there are two accounts of the outcome of this contest. The first states that Ghiberti was given the prize outright, and the second is that Ghiberti and Brunelleschi were both awarded the commission, but Brunelleschi refused to work with Ghiberti. I'm not sure which is more accurate, but the second does fit with his personality, as we will see when we get to the dome of Florence Cathedral. Either way, Brunelleschi leaves Florence for Rome, and according to Vasari, vows never to sculpt again. He is joined in Rome by Donatello, but we will discuss their time in Rome in a few minutes. As for Ghiberti, he had just won the commission of a lifetime. Literally. It's going to take him 21 years to complete the 28 panels for the baptistry doors. This set of doors depicts the life of Christ and several key saints. They were, however, moved to the north side of the baptistry to make room for a new set of doors on the east side. This would be Ghiberti's next commission after the original doors of the baptistry were complete. These are the doors Michelangelo dubbed the Gates of Paradise. After the completion of the first set of doors, Ghiberti was a celebrity and immediately awarded the new commission. This time the doors would depict scenes from the Old Testament. As he worked, Ghiberti continued to adopt new ideas, and in the design of these panels, he used perspective. Ironically, perspective is a mathematical theory developed by none other than Brunelleschi. I'm going to save the detailed explanation of linear perspective for the next episode on Masaccio, but basically, it's a way to create the illusion of depth on a flat surface using converging lines. Brunelleschi devised this theory, and it was used by his friends Masaccio and Donatello. It's likely Ghiberti was influenced by Donatello's use of perspective in some of his bronze panels which predate the Gates of Paradise. I'm going to attach a prezi I created for my classes that includes the Gates of Paradise, mainly because you can see the entire work and that it also allows you to zoom in. I will also post several images on the website as well. We're not going to discuss each panel, but the important thing to remember is that the Gates of Paradise represent a complete break with Gothic art. No longer do the figures inhabit a flat surface or appear as though they came from a manuscript, but rather they inhabit their own three-dimensional world. Let's catch up with Brunelleschi and Donatello in Rome and then we will bring the entire cast back together for one of the greatest achievements of the Renaissance, the Dome of Florence Cathedral. After leaving Florence, the pair of artists settled into Rome. Rome during the early Renaissance was not the cultural capital we think of today. It was dirty and seedy and actually had a smaller population than Florence. While the Renaissance was changing the views of people in Florence, the people of Rome still maintained medieval superstitions. They did not look to their Roman past with admiration, but with fear and distrust. Roman statues were destroyed and buildings used for quarries. The Roman Forum was actually used as pasture. When Brunelleschi and Donatello appeared with shovels and began digging around the old Roman ruins... The locals viewed them with suspicion and believed them to be treasure hunters. No one was quite sure what they were up to, not even Donatello. They would tote dirt away and clear the foundation of old buildings, and digging up statues that would end up in the collection of wealthy patrons. They were, in fact, some of the first archaeologists in history. Brunelleschi kept his intent hidden from all, even his close friend Donatello. But what he was doing was an intensive study of Roman architecture, Using surveying tools, he would map out the roads and foundations of the Roman ruins. It's possible that during this time in Rome, he worked out his ideas on perspective. Using his surveyor's tools, he could very easily have measured the ruins and discovered how to create the illusion on paper. We can't know for certain, but growing up in the shadow of Florence Cathedral, he would have been familiar with the problem of the dome. No one had worked out a solution to the dome over the past few decades as the church was being constructed. It's very possible that while studying the ruins, he figured out a solution for the dome, one that could withstand the pressures generated by such massive structures. This is all speculation because he never wrote anything down. But, after a short period of time, after returning from Rome, Brunelleschi entered a competition to complete the dome. In 1418, the Wool Merchants Guild sponsored a competition for the honor of completing the Dome of Florence Cathedral. The two main competitors were Brunelleschi and, yep, you guessed it, Ghiberti. The contestants were to present the guild with a model of their design. Architects of the day would create elaborate models to demonstrate their designs, sometimes using miniature bricks to scale. Some of these models could be quite large, large enough even to walk inside of. These models would serve as a guide for the stonemasons and the bricklayers to follow as they worked. Typically, domes were built with the use of some sort of centering, some structure that supported the dome from the inside while it was being built. Now, the dome is a variant of the arch. Basically, if you take the arch and extend it in a circle 360 degrees, you have a dome. Once the keystone is in place, you have a very stable architectural element. However, Until that point, the dome was vulnerable to collapse. So, this explains the need for centering. The most common method was to use a wooden structure, but on occasion, architects did use dirt, literally piling up a mound of dirt and building over top of it. This would then be carefully shoveled out once the dome was complete. The Wool Merchants Guild did not like this idea very much. Apparently, the idea of shoveling out an entire cathedral's worth of dirt did not appeal to them. Brunelleschi, though, had a novel solution for the dome, one that would need no centering. Brunelleschi's entry was treated with skepticism, and the experts brought in by the Opera del Duomo, the overseers of the construction project, could not understand how his design could possibly work. They pushed for him to elaborate, and in typical Brunelleschi fashion, he refused. This may have been fear that others might steal his ideas, or... He didn't have all the details worked out himself. The discussions got so heated that Brunelleschi was called, and I'm quoting here, an ass and a babbler by one of the appointed experts. According to Vasari, the decision between the other contestants and Brunelleschi hinged on a single challenge. Who can make an egg stand on its end? Renaissance thinkers were fascinated by the longitudinal strength of the egg, and this is perhaps the inspiration of the domed vault. All of the contestants failed, but when Brunelleschi attempts the challenge, he simply cracks the bottom of the egg and stands it upright. When one of the contestants complained that he could have done this same thing, Brunelleschi responds by saying they would know how to vault the cupola too if he had showed them. According to Vasari, this display won over the judges and Brunelleschi was first and his old rival Ghiberti was second. Brunelleschi was appointed to oversee the building of the dome. Probably to Brunelleschi's great frustration, Ghiberti was also named as co-architect. However, Brunelleschi soon became the de facto architect, and every machine necessary to build the dome was his invention. Need a new type of hoist to bring materials to unheard-of heights? Sure, I got this. How about one that is even more efficient and does not require oxen to be unyoked to change direction, Yeah, I got this too. Brunelleschi continually invented new marvels in order to complete the dome. The hoist we have been discussing has been studied by architects and engineers as one of the great wonders of the Renaissance. Using oxen to wind the gears and lift the hoist, Brunelleschi contrived a mechanism, essentially a clutch, to allow the system to change gears and lower the hoist without having to unyoke the oxen. This design is similar to the gears of a bicycle. The hoist could be used to lift heavy sandstone beams into place by means of a Lewis bolt. Oh yeah, that's another one of Brunelleschi's inventions too. He invented any number of cranes and machines for the completion of the dome. This guy's a genius. Leonardo gets a lot of press for his mechanical inventions, but the difference between Brunelleschi and Leonardo is that Brunelleschi actually put his to work. Just as with the bronze panels 20 years earlier, Brunelleschi was secretive about his process and his designs. This left Ghiberti in the dark, and eventually he would fade to the background, and Brunelleschi would be recognized by the Opera del Duomo as the head architect for the construction project. In order to tackle the difficulties of raising the dome without centering, Brunelleschi designed a double-shelled dome and employed the use of eight ribs that would support the dome. He filled the space between the ribs with brick, laid in a herringbone pattern to transfer the weight to the ribs. This would hold the bricks in place until the mortar dried. So the dome is actually two domes placed on top of a drum. The drum is where the windows were placed, and this would allow light into the sanctuary. The inner dome is made of marble and sandstone, and as we have already discussed, the outer shell is composed of brick. To prevent the dome from spreading, this is where the weight pushes the sides outward, he placed a series of iron and stone chains around the dome to act like barrel hoops. This would help the dome retain its form. One of the things I find really fascinating about these rings is that there are nine of them, calling to mind Dante's Inferno. Brunelleschi was actually a Dante scholar, and it's likely no coincidence that the rings of the dome coincide with the Nine Rings of Hell in Dante's Inferno. The only difference is these rings are in reverse, and they lead to paradise rather than hell. So in the middle of all of this flurry of activity around the Duomo in 1434, Brunelleschi finds himself arrested. Likely, this was instigated by members of the Albizzi faction. Brunelleschi was close to the Medicis, in particular Cosimo, The artist had already been forced to take a reduction in pay for his work when Cosimo was exiled. His departure had a tremendous impact on all of the artists in the city, as he was one of the main patrons. Brunelleschi would spend two weeks in prison for a minor debt until Cosimo was restored by the Sonoria. With Cosimo back in Florence, work could resume once again on the Dome. The work of the Dome would consume Brunelleschi for most of his life. But finally, it would be consecrated at the Feast of the Annunciation in 1436. The procession would be led by the Pope, who would also give the blessing. Oh yeah, remember back in Episode 1, we discussed the siege of the Sonoria? Well, I neglected to mention why the Pope was in residence at Santa Maria Novella. It seems that he was run out of Rome by a bunch of rock-throwing peasants and thought it prudent to hold court in Florence for the time so this allowed him to be on hand for the settlement that restored Cosimo and participate in the consecration of Santa Maria dei Fiore. The Dome of Florence Cathedral is a testament to the genius of Brunelleschi. It took 16 years to complete the Dome and nearly 140 years to complete the cathedral itself, but it has become a symbol of Florence as well as the Renaissance. Years later, another artist would walk the stairway to the top of the Dome, just as you can do today, but he was examining the framework and the masonry. This artist, of course, is Michelangelo. Michelangelo studied Brunelleschi's dome as he prepared to raise the new dome for St. Peter's in Rome. It can be argued that even Michelangelo could not surpass the work of Brunelleschi, for St. Peter's contained several structural flaws that led to cracking not seen in the dome for Florence Cathedral. Next week, we will discuss a friend and colleague of Brunelleschi's, the painter Masaccio, considered to be the first artist to use Brunelleschi's theories of perspective in his work.